this is Utano Public Health Chats with your host Fiona and today I'm excited to host another Zimbabwean. <laughs> I feel like I keep getting so many Zimbabweans on my show uh, just because it's so much easier <laughs> that my network <laughs> is full of but I promise I'm trying to broaden my net but for now you'll be listening to a lot of my faves <laughs> especially from Twitter. So yeah, today uh, I have another Zimbabwean and I'm excited because I think we're also unlocking another subfield in public health, which is humanitarian work. Of course, people can debate around like, does it stand on its own? Is it another public health? That's a different conversation. But I still think definitely part of this conversation on Putano public health chats. So excited to hear from my guests. How did we connect? We connected on Twitter. I think this is where I know you from. <laughs> We've been following each other for a couple of years yeah. now. <laughs> and definitely, I'm pretty sure the reason I clicked follow on your profile was because you had, you know, I think at the time you're actually still doing your master's, but I remember you having public health or something on your bio. And then I followed and like, we just, you know, had <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. we went. And you also were part of my panel when I hosted the Twitter space on what is public health. Uh, and I remember people really appreciating yeah, it. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, last year in 2021, Q3, I think, or Q4, and people really enjoying or having someone with a social sciences background talk about their career path. So definitely all of those things made me think, okay, this would be a perfect person to like deep dive in on uh, the show. So without too much rambling, I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Tell us your name, where you're from, what do you do, what countries do you work in, and yeah, take it away. Uh, thanks, Fiona. So my name is Tessenda, and I am currently working in South Sudan uh, as a humanitarian aid worker. Right now, I'm what I would call myself just not public health uh, person. I have moved into a field called safeguarding, which mm-hmm. is basically preventing and responding to issues of sexual exploitation and abuse, which is mainly rife in the locations that we work in. So that's what I'm currently doing now. I've been here in South Sudan for the past four years. Uh, this August, I celebrated my fourth anniversary in South Sudan. So yay! Wow. Uh, that's that's actually a small intro of myself. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be a guest on my show. I'm excited to like dig dig, dig into all the things you've talked about already. I can't believe it's been four years. <laughs> it's like, wow, I remember when you started. Oh, I know, right? Oh, man, time flies. <laughs> but that's a lot that of really flies. Like, a lot of experience. <laughs> Yeah, oh, and yes. safeguarding, I, I don't think, to be honest, like, I think I'm going to be learning as much as the audience today as well. Zero expertise in all the things you're going to be talking about. So excited to learn more about what what you do and kind of like how you landed there. And so maybe let's start there. I think maybe can we talk about what led you to start working in this field? Maybe you can, whether you want to speak generally about public health or specifically about safeguarding, like what, what, like where did this story start for you? Okay, so this is gonna be like a long story from like the beginning, the beginning, like high school beginning, right? Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> more than ten years ago. Look at me showing my age, but yeah. So anyway, when I was in O level, I of course everybody wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a doctor because I was doing my sciences. Okay, and then. Well, when the results came out, I had failed my mathematics. So there was no way I was going to continue in the science class. Mm-hmm. So, and we were those, uh, you remember that stream which had, like, which went for their A-levels without the O-level um, results. So I actually went and, and did my science class and then the results came and I did not have mathematics and I had to move to the arts class because I don't do well with numbers. So commercials wasn't going to come to cut it. So at that time, uh, I said, okay, you know, if I can't be a doctor, I can be a lawyer. <laughs> then I did my A's. I 
had significantly good results. I had tasting points, and so I applied for law. And my second choice was social work mm-hmm. in uh, at UZ, right? Uh, but then when it came to yeah to the selection, they I didn't cut it because they had a lot of fifteen and fourteen pointers, and I couldn't get into social work because. Well, it, I wasn't. They were in my first choice, so I wasn't going to be their first choice either. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I ended up doing, and I couldn't do psychology or e- economics because no mathematics. So I ended up doing. Um, I ended up doing sociology. When I was doing sociology at that point, I did not even know what, like, what is the clear. There was no clear career path. Nobody was like. Okay, when you do sociology, this is what you become in life. There's no. I hope things have changed now. Um, there's no clear guidance, career guidance of what you become. It's like you're learning all these theories and you're doing a lot of things. You even do a little of psychology, a little bit of health, a little mm-hmm. bit of. Uh, you, but you're you're doing like you're you're a jack of all trades and master of none, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh. When I was in uni, I decided, you know what, I need to find my own career path. Like, it can't be in. Like, I can't go to school for three years and still not know what I'm supposed to do. There was no attachment in the program, so I decided, you know, I'm just going to find an internship that I can do on holidays so that I can at least have an idea of what I'm doing. So I managed to get an internship with one of the organizations in Arai, which was doing. A health promotion project. So, as an intern, well, mainly my my duties were like I had to go with them. If they're going to the field, they we usually had to go to Mashingo almost every week. That's where the the the, the project was, and so we would go there and we'll be doing a lot of behavior change communication posters and all that and that's when it started for me so I was like okay so I can be a doctor but I can promote mm-hmm. health to other means like there's all this like and I'm artistic like I can draw I can like I can do a lot of creative things and so I, I was now like helping with the making of the posters and like having um like if we go, we go to a school having those school clubs just so I started helping them with the behavior change posters. I would organize like cool edge groups who would act out what we're trying to convey, and that's when it all started for me. Right, like okay, so I can I can do I can I can still be in health and not do medicine. Right. Uh, anyway, I went back to school, and and I completed my first degree. And then, well, I started looking for a job in Zim, and those who are from Zim, you know the struggle. <laughs> it's a struggle. <laughs> so I tried to like get the place where I intend with to hire me full time, but of course they didn't have that kind of budget, so they couldn't. And I tried all kinds of applications, and you know, um. Sometimes it would get ridiculous. Like you're just coming from school and you have zero years of experience. And when you see, when you're invited to an interview, you're sitting with people who have like 12 years of experience. So there's no way uh-huh. that you're going to be people for a place. Uh, I finally, like, I got a scholarship to go to India. And well, I'm just going to say how I got it. Because I want people out there who mm-hmm. who uh, listen to this to know that you know chances can come from everywhere. Like it's it's exactly. your journey is never like something that is pre-planned and it happens. Like I've already said, I've I've wanted to be a doctor, a lawyer, and now I'm in a weird space where I don't even know where I want to go. And then finally, I saw the light. Moving forward, how I got the scholarship. So I was actually waiting for my friend um, Rose. Shout out to you, Rose need to listen to this so I was waiting for my friend Rose for a construction house so while I was there I was going to link up it was a Friday and uh, there were some some guys just came to me and accosted me you know we have scholarships we have scholarships for 
India, we have scholarships for China, like if you want to go to Malaysia. And honestly, on a normal day, I ignore those people because what? <laughs> How are you just moving around town with scholarships? Right. Uh, but on this particular day, I did not have, I had time. Mm-hmm. So I was waiting for my friend. She was lying to me that she was on her way, but I know of course she was still getting ready. So I'm like, okay, I've got time today. Uh, you want to make a fool out of me? Then okay, I can play. So they tell me that their offices are inside, and you know they they have all the scholarships. And if I just want to give them a minute or two, they can explain to me how it works. I was like, okay, cool. So I go with them and. They start explaining, okay, so they have scholarships up to 75%, 50 like there are different types of the scholarships. And if I want to do my degree, especially in India, they can be able to help me apply there and then. And then I told them, you know, well, I've already done my first degree and I would like to go for a master's, but I don't think your university offers the same, the program that I, w- I would want to do. They're like, which program? I'm like, I want to do public health. I mean, I would want to, but I was just stringing them along. And then they said, you're in love. Uh, this mm-hmm. university just started their public health program. I'm like, okay. <laughs> That's a little odd, but okay. They're like, do you have your certificates in your email? Yes. Okay, log in, download your certificates. Let's help you apply here. So we did that. And they helped me apply and they put my, my email. They're like, if you are accepted, they will directly contact you. That's how I got my scholarship. They offered me 50%. Wow. <laughs> I, I mean, I went about my day and then two days later, I had this email about having a 50% scholarship. I brushed it off. Uh, then a week later, I'm talking to my mom. I'm like, okay, there's this scholarship thing I got. And she says, then don't, don't, don't sit here. Go to school. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah that's how I ended up in public health sometimes you end up in a niche that you never thought you would but mm-hmm. like life just takes you where you where you're supposed to go anyway uh so yeah that's how it started for me I know long story if you haven't no I love one, this I love all of this I am so intrigued. Construction house. Okay, before I start unpacking this, let's maybe give some context to the audience. So you mentioned like in Zimbabwe, maybe some context is that in Zimbabwe, we do for high school, we do what we call all levels. That's ordinary level at 16, uh, which is like your basic exams, right? National exams Mm -hmm. that people proceed to advanced level which is a levels and then you pick either typically it's either your arts or your commercials or your sciences that's what Tatenda was referring to and then after that you apply you go to university and like as you mentioned um, my understanding is that like at University of Zimbabwe and or other local universities in Zimbabwe right you have to pick when you submit your application based on your A-level results, you pick three choices like you mentioned yeah. first, second, third and it's done in a tiered approach so like you mentioned, like if you get into your first, if not, then your second, if not, then your third. And that's how you ended up doing your bachelor's in sociology, which is really cool. Um, yeah. And then like you said, you know, I love your honesty and honestly, thank you for sharing how just like, you know, challenging it could be coming out. I had the same experience as well, graduating and like every job is like entry level job minimum number of years experience required five years okay, and I'm exactly. like, where <laughs> where am I I'm 23 where do I have five years <laughs> <laughs> right? I would have been 18 but yeah right so definitely like that also I think that's a really a reality in terms of like how that uh, affects young people and the choices we have to make for our careers and sometimes like what's in front of you what's available and then this amazing story of how you then assembled and then upon this scholarship program at construction house in cbd harari (laughs) it's pretty cool and then you got in (laughs) wow that is like amazing it's like the gods intended it but that's pretty cool and then also i really appreciated um another thing i learned from your story so far was how you took initiative when you were doing your bachelor's and you found these internships where you were able to do field work it sounds like, again, you were going to Mashingo, cities outside of Harare and doing health promotion work, basically, right? I think that's amazing. And it sounds like you having that initiative was very helpful in your future experiences as you now also do for work. Um, so I thought that was all pretty yeah. cool. 
And then so you get to India, you do your, was it like a one year or two years master's? I'm just curious. Okay, so my master's was two years. And so, you know, it was two years and it, it went in a blur. You know how it mm-hmm. is when you're, when you're young and like I graduated pretty early. By 21, I had my, my bachelor's. So this was just me reliving my college days, but doing master's. So it, it went really fast. Really fast. Mm-hmm. And then it was time to go home. And again, the same reality mm-hmm. was facing me. You have to go home. I've met at that time, I, I had tried, you know, to connect with people through LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And by the time I was going back home, it was elections time in Zim. And most of them were like, you know, we, we're just taking it slow. Right now we're not hiring. We just want to see how the wind is going to blow. So by the time I arrived, I had like zero prospects again. That's when, uh, so I, I landed back home in June of 2018. And well, it was, it was frustrating all around. Everything was mm-hmm. like, okay, I, I started again going to those interviews. Now I have a master's, but like still no experience. I'm still applying and I'm now getting called to interviews more regularly, but still it's not yeah. going as fast as I wanted it to. In hindsight, though, now I realize that maybe I was just giving myself too much pressure because I barely stayed at home for, what, two months? Mm-hmm. And I, I already wanted like things to move fast. Anyway, now I'm going to tell you another story about how I ended up in South Sudan. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> Okay, so this is how I ended up in South Sudan. It's a really funny story to me personally because I can't, like, everything is just happenstance in my life. I, I don't even know how it happens. But anyway, so when I was in India, you know, when you're in a foreign place and you're, like, an African, you tend to start engaging with other Africans and mm-hmm. all that, like, you're, you're gathering, like, you're more inclined to socialize with people of your own like yeah so I started befriending people from all over Africa and I was so surprised to hear that there's a country called South Sudan I didn't know that can you believe it (laughs) I didn't know that there was a country in Africa called South Sudan and I was just like okay that is interesting and then they started telling me about how they live in different refugee camps like their Mm -hmm. country is has faced a lot of conflicts over the years so I was I was very keen like I was it was very interesting I was like you know what I think this is the place where like after you hear the place you you start to to see the news like ignorance is bliss or something so you start seeing all this news about that is happening there so I've I always say you know what if if I'm to go back to if I'm to go back home I don't think Zimbabwe is the kind of place where like of course we have our own problems as a country, but like mm. this kind of work that I, I think I'm meant to do, I don't think we have those kind of problems in Zimbabwe. We have our own problems, yes, but like there's some places which have it like way worse that I can think about. Like I do not have to focus on just going back home. There are mm-hmm. all these places where atrocities are happening, conflict, humanitarian crises are happening. I think I need to be there. Mm. Hmm. Blind faith. I don't know anybody who has confidence in themselves. Anyway, <laughs> so when I got when I got back home after India, I started looking for jobs in South Sudan. But it was the same. Ten years of experience with masters. It, it was mm. masters, then maybe five. And okay, fine. This is the same thing everywhere. All right, what am I going to do? So I'm just applying. Nothing is happening. And then one day I was on this this forum which they post, which jobs are posted for NGOs here in South Sudan. And it, it's like a, a Google forum sort of like, so you can either, you can also write to post the jobs that you're advertising or whatever. So I remember it was a Friday and I was at my mom's workplace using Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. And then I just wrote like um, a frustrated venting letter, just generally. My name is so-and-so. I've done this and this. I have a mm-hmm. master's in public health. Whenever I try to, to apply for anything, they want experience. I can't get experience without a job. And I'm like, I don't know like, if there's anyone out there who knows how best to like, navigate this catch-22 situation. Maybe just like 
let me know because I am drowning over here. Like, right. And then I just posted it. I went home. I come back on Monday to open my emails. And guess what? I had like more than 20 emails. <laughs> wow. I posted my email, my contact details from there. Ah, so I opened the emails. Uh, some of them are ways of encouragement. Some of them are prayer points. Mm-hmm. Some of them are telling me, come, come, let's open our own organization. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> and there were uh, just a few of them which were like, okay, there's this position. You can apply. Like, don't shy away from applying. You have a right. master's. Don't mm-hmm. just say, okay, uh, just because they're saying 10 years of experience, just think how many people have 10 years experience and a master in public health do not be discouraged you have one of those chances are you have more than 40 percent of the required things okay and then one of them was like you know what we are actually looking for a project coordinator and the way you have written your cover letter shows me you know how to do proposals so here's the vacancy you can apply and wow. then yeah we see so i applied i had an interview and the first interview that i did i really sucked like i don't know i was scared i was stammering i was Mm -hmm. like oh my god this is it this is my one chance yeah and anyway um they uh, they said i went through and then i turned this out for that India in June and uh-huh. in August I was in South Sudan. <laughs> so all the stress, all the struggle was happening in in like a few months. But when you're in that situation, you don't feel like you know, uh, like yeah. there's time. You you're like I I am under pressure. I need I don't want to be like you. You went to school and then what happened? Mm. Uh, so. Yeah, that's how that's how I ended up coming here. And so I entered the field of humanitarian work. And at that point, as the project coordinator, we mainly had... Also, I was number two in that organization. <laughs> it was a small organization. It was okay. a field. And it was good experience. I was the number two at that point. It was a local one. So, of course, you know, to do what's there. Mm-hmm. And it gave me so much experience. And... Uh, at that time, we had a health project and an education project. So again, my public health started getting useful. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I joined another organization. I've joined four organizations, just so you know. I right. yes, I know that do. sometimes for you to move up, you have to like do it laterally. So mm-hmm. now I entered a field of sexual health, sexual reproduction, health and rights. Mm-hmm. I started working with a different organization and we were doing that. But in our work, we realized that sometimes uh, with the work that we do as humanitarians, as aid workers, as, as development practitioners, we end up putting our beneficiaries at more harm than good. Mm. So like, for example, in public health, Let's say we are doing like wash work where, oh, sorry, uh, water, sanitation, water sanitation and hygiene. Mm-hmm. So when you're doing that, uh, you're basically hygiene promoting, you're basically doing hygiene promotion for the community, right? right. But then if something happens or if you want to build a very cheap quality kind of latrine, and if a kid were to fall in that latrine, then we will be doing more harm than good, right? Mm-hmm. Or if we don't put into account their local practices. So there are some practices where sometimes, let's say, they, they greet with the hand. Mm-hmm. I mean, thank God um, COVID has made everybody be like, okay, I'm not greeting you by hand. But let's say that's the local practice, right? So you need to come with your message in a ma- in a manner that is not like okay what you're doing is nonsense but in a manner that that is like okay how can we help you move from this mm-hmm. to this of course if if you were to wear at someone that is not what your in your culture that would be like rude right but what else can you do that does not involve you 
touching the person and that does not make you look like you're being a snob. Right. Yeah. So it was, that's when I realized that, you know what, this work is all the same because now we're really, again, back at BCC uh, while doing uh, public health, but also sexual health and rights and all that. Mm-hmm. And then also we realized that in, in our work, uh, because of the status that we have as people who work for NGOs, uh, either when you're a local staff or an international staff, is you have more power over these people. There's no, like, mm-hmm. sometimes people use that advantage and mm-hmm. start sexually exploiting the community members, harassing other other workers in the NGOs and it is not like now we it is not it is against the do no harm principle mm. so now that is what I'm doing basically that is safeguarding working on prevention of any sexual exploitation and abuse that could happen because of our activities as humanitarian workers uh, in the community so my public health uh, behavior change it, is now how I'm channeling it. Again, the sky is the limit <laughs> when wow. it comes to public health. Whenever I'm listening to your podcast, I realize that there are people doing a lot of different things just from right. the same public health that we did. And it never ceases to amazing. Right? It's it's amazing. And that's, and that's part of why I love the field of public health and why I started this podcast because there's just so much to talk about and it's all connected, I think. And even like you're mentioning, so you say BCC stands for... Behavior change. Uh, behavior change communication. Communication. Okay, perfect. And that's something that you have you learned in your sociology, right? No? Or Yes. And when it comes to sociology, at that point, I did not know. Now, all these humanitarian organizations, every, every vacancy is looking for somebody who has done sociology. When you're in school, nobody like tells us oh, these yeah. are the opportunities that you have. Now, every vacancy that I see is looking for a person with sociology mm-hmm. and any oh, human rights mm-hmm. and like public health is uh, an added advantage, which is like, so there was a method to all this madness. <laughs> <laughs> there really was. It's so amazing and so crazy at the same time. It's so funny because I was just recording an episode with someone else uh, the other day and we were just talking about how like in her words of wisdom she was saying just follow your bliss and like you'll get there like it all like kind of like even when you especially as a young person right when you're in it and exactly right you you don't you don't know right and you're just like hi i'm doing this i can't get this job why am i doing this internship it's unpaid oh. like you know what am i doing with my life and then eventually as time goes it kind of like gels together so who would have known right it does in your undergrad that it would then help you like you say it almost 10 years later (laughs) and that's that's amazing and that's just part of like I feel like greater related to like life but also I think part of it is also realizing that a lot of things like you said are public health like public health is more than just what a lot of people think about and so many skills and backgrounds are necessary in the field and are very value additive and like you're saying even the way you were describing us like that's so important because I think in my public health background right when you think of like quote-unquote designing public health interventions I think sometimes like you said we're solution focused you say oh there's this hygienic problem because germs leads to illness and people die and then you say give people the latrine or whatever it is right build it so that people can have access but then if we don't understand the context, like you say, the context in which people live and, and the need for politeness, for not coming off as a snob, like you said, then exactly. it doesn't matter what we design, the public health outcomes won't happen, right? <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, yeah, you just end up having a, 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 an intervention that you design by yourself and nobody's going to use it because yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not something that they, they find useful. Mm-hmm. You have not, that's why you should have like a survivor centered approach to things mm-hmm. like, okay, we're going to those people. They're not like just people we think they don't know anything. They have been here for years. Mm-hmm. They know the kind of opportunities they have. So, how about we work with them 
and see how best. So yeah, in, in my work again, I do community engagement just mm-hmm. to see like how best we can work together and uh, come up with a program that is going to be beneficial for both. Amazing. That's just, oh my gosh, that's so good. Yeah, you say it's survivor what? Can you say that term again? Survivor-centered approach. Ooh. Okay. I'm learning. I'm learning. I'm here <laughs> taking notes. Look at <laughs> you. Survivor-centered approach. So what does that mean? Like, yes, I think you already gave an example, but like, is that like a term in your field in the work that you do? And how does it like come up? Okay. So as I mentioned, it's like a way of designing your project in the mm-hmm. sense that it, you are factoring the needs of the survivors or like the beneficiaries or clients Mm -hmm. as some organizations would call them. So that means whatever you're doing, you have to ensure that maybe you've had like a meeting with them, a pre-meeting with them and tell them, okay, this is the project that we have. Okay, maybe we've got money for, uh, let's say for example, we got money for water sanitation and hygiene. Where do you think the needs are, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, you could be there busy building the latrines, but they don't have water. So mm-hmm. we need the boreholes first. Mm-hmm. So you need to work with the community and see where are the needs before you go there with your tools and you realize that, okay, their soil does not even work with the kind of tools that you have. So your tools are just shared and nobody's going to use them. So it's basically just involving the survivors or the community, as someone would call them, the community that you're responding to say, okay, look, we might we might have this, but what do you think? Do you think that's something that's useful here or, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah that's great. Okay, thanks for that. No, that's very, that sheds more light. Okay. And so I'm guessing the term survivor is being used here because you're in humanitarian settings. Is that why? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Okay. Yeah. So in, in in humanitarian settings, you usually use survivors because they're survivors of conflict either or survivors of like uh, crises, humanitarian crises, like flood, war and all this. So they survived something and we're coming here to respond to that humanitarian need. But like, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, in development settings, what do you guys call them? I don't know in development settings. Personally, I I was actually thinking of a previous episode. I don't know if you listened to my episode with Nikki. I think we talked Mm -hmm. about what she called a patient-centered approach. That's what I was thinking of right now when you say that. And I think even with Sia, the health economist, we talked about centering patients' needs. So it's still the same concept. It's just that in a humanitarian humanitarian setting, like you're saying, they've survived a crisis, they've survived a flood or a conflict, but they're still like the person receiving the care or the health intervention, you're putting them at the center and asking them, what are your needs? How can we help? That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And like, so do you, in your work, you said you also do some community engagement. Um, What kind of, I guess, what kind of, when you say you, yeah, you work in community engagement and safeguarding in a humanitarian setting. So are you mostly working in refugee camps or yeah, what does that look like? Okay, so we we have both settings. We have uh, work in in refugee camps, and then mm-hmm. we have camp. We have work in internally displaced persons camps. So when it comes to community engagement, that looks like especially when it comes to safeguarding. Like when we come usually as an organization to intervene or as humanitarian aid workers to intervene, it's usually like we look like we're the saviors, right? Mm-hmm. for the people with the resources and everything. But also, the communities need to know that there are rules that bind us. There are principles that bind humanitarian work. Right? Mm-hmm. So there are six core principles, which I can't recall right now. <laughs> right. <Okay. laughs> but like, yeah. yeah, so there are these core principles that every humanitarian worker or aid worker falls under, right? Okay. So we need to tell them that the code of conduct of the organization and the the like the rules against safeguarding. Like we can't have relations with children under the age of 18, regardless if either the law of the land says 16 is okay. We can't do that. Okay. We can't fraternize with survivors. We mm-hmm. can't use food for sex or mm. uh, services for, for sex or okay. exchange of employment. We can't do that. But they don't know that. 
So my duty is to inform them that this is what binds us. And if you see us going the other way, Mm -hmm. then these are the ways that you can report. You have the rights to report and this will be dealt with. And I also do investigations of sexual exploitation abuse. So let's say a case is reported, then I have to investigate which mm. what what code was breached and you know have a way forward of like that person most likely being terminated if they do that. So that's what I do. Wow, that's that's pretty important work. Hey, there's also pretty I want to say heavy work, but definitely I mean, <laughs> yeah. I know like in our work, I also work at an international NGO and I, even though I don't have te- direct, I typically don't on a day to day, uh, have direct beneficiary engagement. We still at our onboarding, we'll have like trainings that we have to complete where we learn about like my employer's like code of conduct and what, like you, what you exactly. and yeah. cannot do. And I'm also just remembering at the time in which I started working, which is like 2019, and like I won't name names, but there'd been a, a big scandal that had just happened at the time, I think a year or two back, where exactly came yes. out that they were, um, like you said, exchanging food for sexual yes. from beneficiaries who were also minors. So it's very important, right? Like, exactly. I also. Yeah the whole what you brought up they just like do no harm like we work in fields where like you say there's a power imbalance and also we're coming in with the resources right so by default that already tips the scale and we're quote-unquote the ones with the knowledge or we think we're the ones with the knowledge and the resources so that creates you know ripe opportunity and people are you know like very big they're like, vulnerable, right? Um, exactly. So that definitely is something I'm hoping that, you know, other organizations also also take seriously. And it's great to know that outside of like internal organizations, like people are working on. So you call, so that's basically safeguarding, right? Yes. All so of that falls under safeguarding. Yeah, no, that's pretty important and pretty amazing work. And like I said, it sounds very serious. <laughs> <laughs> it does. I jokingly call myself the class monitor <laughs> because I'm like, hey, so what do you do? No, that's and... not allowed. No, don't do that. Like, <laughs> right? Because that's scary. Also, like, yeah, I guess it is. Yeah, you're a class monitor. You're a class monitor for aid workers, and I, we're, it's needed, right? I am. I am. I'm a Otherwise, class people will, will people and. It's, that's not our that's not our job right in the field we're supposed to be making people better we're, um, yeah we're not supposed to be harming them we're supposed to be right. helping them survive yeah that's good to know so like in your work can you maybe share a little bit like what is your favorite what's the favorite thing about doing the work that you do my favorite thing about doing the work that i do is going to the field like mm-hmm. you can go to the more a place where you will be like god how is this happening and see how resilient people are thinking how are people surviving here there's barely nothing you can't even plant things here it's nowhere literally a helicopter has to drop you there and you see people just living their life the thing has happened and they're resilient they just move on with life it's not okay most of the times you're the one who's like feeling so bad, but they have the sense, like most beneficiaries have this sense of bouncing back that I've mm-hmm. never seen anywhere in the world. So that's, that's the most important, like I, how they have managed to become people who can survive literally anything. And when you, when we come in as humanitarian workers, we just, adding additional things that they need to, to continue mm-hmm. but even by themselves they have a strong sense of resilience i think i've said that word a lot of times now <laughs> but yeah it is, it is a key thing in, in this context yeah. yeah and so in your particular role so you spend a lot of your time would you say you spend like 50 percent in the field or yes i ideally i should but you know, the, this is a tropic. So sometimes like flooding has started right now. That means mm-hmm. like half of the country is inaccessible until maybe around October, November. So 
I'm not really like I will go, but I have to select. But yes, really, like okay, let's just say forty sixty, forty percent in the field. Yeah, in the field. Wow, that's still, still a lot of time in the field. Yeah. So like after being, yeah, it must be a lot. I'm just thinking like emotionally, physically, it might be, might be taxing. So what do you do to like what what do organizations or employers in the humanitarian field do to ensure your safety and like your mental well being, right? Okay, so they do give us rest and recuperation vacation days. So for the organization that I'm working for, every six weeks I need to leave the country. They sponsor us to leave the country and get some rest, like one week. So six weeks in, one week out. So yeah, that keeps us going. For other organizations, eight weeks, but like the same concept. And yeah, so more vacation days, more sick leaves, more R&R days. So at least you can have that like time to unwind and like so that you don't get too desensitized because that's what happens when you stay in the field for so long. You mm-hmm. become so desensitized to whatever is happening. It's like, ah, okay, another atrocity and cool. Mm-hmm. What's new? <laughs> so that whole cycle helps keep us sane, to be honest. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, it's good to know that it's set up in that way to kind of like also, it, it helps you, but it also helps you be better um, workers for the people that you serve, right? Exactly. Yeah, so and then maybe can you also tell us what is your least favorite thing <laughs> for the work that you do? <laughs> My least favorite thing, I think, would be the burnout that comes with it. Okay. Sometimes you get so bent out and desensitized from what is happening. The, uh, I don't know how to explain it, but, uh, but like, it's a, lot. It's a thing. Yeah. Like, you, you're just there, the sun goes up, you work, the sun goes down, you're just like a zombie just doing, and you're not into it, but it's something that you have to do, and you're bent. It happens that even your colleagues can be like, well, which week are you in again? Because you are it's totally in it, right? Yeah. So, so that can happen because there are times when you can't just leave at the at the six weeks. Let's say you're following up something, you're you're on a project like before. Okay, now with the work that I'm doing, yeah, I can afford to leave. But but like when you're into projects, like projects, projects, then it becomes hard to just drop your projects every six weeks and go. Right. So mm-hmm. you might have to attend until an activity is completed. Okay. Yeah. And so the burnout becomes real. Yeah. That's my and- less my least favorite thing. And yeah, I've already talked about desensitization, also that uh mm-hmm. you can see things happening. Like for example, when I was doing GBV and sexual reproductive health and rights program, every week you have the statistics of a center that you run. That okay, there are 19 women who came, four were raped, three were domestically assaulted. Mm. What, what, what? And mm-hmm. you help them, right? You give the services, and then next week, and the next week, and then mm-hmm. they start becoming just numbers and statistics. Mm-hmm. And you're like focused to get to the next day, and you don't have time to feel, even if you want to have the feels, the emotions. Mm. We are taught to to be empathetic and not yeah. emotional. We're not sympathetic, empathetic. So mm. you become just desensitized on what is happening. It's a case. We deal with it. We, you go home. So that also comes with humanitarian work. You become this machine. You're doing things. You don't have time to feel. So that's right. that's, that's, that's least favorite. Right. Yeah, that can be stressful, I can imagine. And also, like, yeah, it, 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 I feel like that can be challenging because, like, you, you know, there's human and humanitarian work, right? You're trying, like you said, I love your distinction between, like, empathetic and not sympathetic, not to look down or feel pity, but to be, to put yourself in their shoes, right? Yeah. But also, you're there to make sure that they're okay by, you know, the resources and standards that are there. So that can be challenging, right? Because then I feel like, Personally, I don't know if I have what it takes. I'll probably just break down and cry. Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> if you break down and cry, you're going to make them feel worse about their situation. I know, but this is 
<laughs> Even when you just gave your example of 19 and then four and then five, I just already I'm like tearing up and it's just like that's horrible. But like you can't do that if you need to ask them questions, follow up, try to make sure that they have yeah. what they need, right? That that need, that needs to get so done. You right? need to do like a questionnaire, like a certain their immediate needs. Do they need mm-hmm. to be taken to the hospital? Do they need psychosocial support? What mm-hmm. is their immediate need? You don't have time to be feeling your feels. Even you, even if you're triggered, even if you're sad, you let them have what they need before you go home. By the time well, you, you go home, you're down to six or seven of that. You don't even know which one to unpack first. <laughs> Do you have a dog? You should get an emotional support. I just want to go home and hug a dog. Like... <laughs> That's why well, I have a husband. No, that's very important because that's the ah, no, I'm not I'm not I'm not into I'm not into into dogs or or, or cats or or like <laughs> personally I I'm into the pandas though. Yeah like big teddy bears because I do feel like you would want like you said sometimes in the moment. You don't have the space or time, right, to to process it for you. You you you're kind of like processing it for them, right, so that they have, like you yeah. say, their immediate so, needs, long term needs. What's actually important? What's actually encouraged to have like a very a very well defined social space okay. where you can? I mean, of course, you can talk about the cases, but like where you can go and descend and just okay. be. That's why you see most humanitarians if they don't do that, they end up being one of these following holics you either become a workaholic an mm-hmm. alcoholic or a sexholic right. so for you to not do that you need like a safe space or mm-hmm. something like most of our, our our stations where we work in are not family duty stations so it's not like you have your family or anything i'm mm-hmm. lucky because mine is here but yeah usually it's not like that so usually that you know you're house or your family or your whoever your social spaces is like from is at home Mm -hmm. or in another country or whatever and you you would only get lucky if they're working in the same country as you the same as i i have but it's not usually like that for most people so you you need to have like a space where you can come home and remove yourself from the work that that space um yeah but we do what we can we are resilient <laughs> resilient i was about to say thank you so much that was going to be my next comment it was going to be like thank you so much for doing this like it's it's a lot and it sounds like you know there's a lot of measures to make sure make sure that you're safe and you have your needs met as well but it's still a big sacrifice you know i appreciate it we at Tutano public health appreciate it now another thing i want to ask before we start wrapping up was given like the examples of like challenges that you expl- explained and just like the nature of your field do you feel like there's high turnover or do some people like quit like I mentioned I would probably just break down and cry like do people <laughs> start and then never come back that happen or turnover <laughs> <and hate laughs> rate it does it, they, there's a lot of that happening there's people okay. who just come for the first six weeks and they're like no you know what this like, is uh, but the funny part is if you go through the first six months you never like i never thought i'll be here for four years <laughs> i like, thought that i'll be doing for this four years bruh <laughs> <laughs> i never thought i'll be doing but somehow once you're in it you're like oh okay so yeah <laughs> also you're doing amazing can, work this... right i think maybe that's what keeps you going right is the work you're doing is actually meaningful and it's very important and maybe staying longer, you've gotten to see what that's doing. So maybe that's what keeps you going. And like you say, being in the field and getting to meet these people and see their like how they're surviving and then being resilient. Maybe that's also a, a more- yeah, that helps. Yeah, so you're like those people are knee deep. Uh, uh, their houses are half of their houses are knee deep into water. They're flooded and they're still going on and you just want to quit because what you saw that one week <laughs> you were in that area for one week no mm-hmm. come on let's go <laughs> <laughs> get <You> up <laughs> All right. I was like, yes you sound like you've got you, you you've got the the grit <laughs> i don't know <laughs> but it's very important and no that's that's amazing work 
I knew this was going to happen. Now we've had too much fun and time has flown by. But <laughs> to start to just like maybe wrap up. But before we start wrapping up, can you maybe given your story, you know, how you started and how you end up doing the specific work you now do in humanitarian work, the different opportunities. And now, like you said, you've been doing specifically this humanitarian work for over four years now. Can you tell me what you can feel free? I feel like humanitarian work is very specific in the way that it is and the populations that it serves. And we've touched on that briefly. But what does, feel free to change it. So you either can answer in terms of public health, or if you want, you can answer in terms of humanitarian like relief or work, right? So what does that mean? How would you define that? Or what does that mean to you to say, you know, my name is Tatenda and I work in public health, or my name is Tatenda and I am a humanitarian worker. What does that mean for you? Okay, so I think I would answer it the same for both because mm-hmm. for me that would mean I work in uh, in preventing Mm-hmm. things before they happen and that's mm-hmm. me just being very yes. simple mm-hmm. <laughs> but like yeah that's because I get asked those questions a lot like at some point I actually didn't even know what I do because right. like somebody asks you what what do you mean you work in in public health I remember at some point my grandmother was telling everybody I'm a doctor and when I went to, to the village too. she, she floated the car for doctor. a doctor <laughs> she just called me a doctor it's fine <laughs> and like my doctor Muzukuru, Muzukuru yeah. what, oh my god yeah mm. so my doctor Muzukuru is here and <laughs> I'm like uh okay <laughs> for me to just explain even in self-guiding what I just like I'm I am preventing and responding when it comes to public health we're pre- preventing and responding to concerns that would pit uh, populations at risk before they happen or like just to make sure that they do not become endemic pandemic or whatever so i think that's 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 how i understand it <laughs> that's just how yeah, i explain you know, that's, that's, that's that's very like on point you know it's it really is a huge part of the work we do is preventative right we, or even when it has yeah. happened we're trying to make sure it doesn't have to happen again right so I completely agree exactly, exactly. and identify with that as well. I think what's maybe a little bit different in the work that you do in safeguarding is like you're looking at specific populations who've gone through specific kind of crises, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, no. So um, for us in, in safeguarding, we're looking at like survivors and they're mm-hmm. like definite risk groups. So mostly it's children and mm-hmm vulnerable adults those who have been like who have gone through like some something really crazy like a crisis or something Mm -hmm. and they are literally depending on aid work to survive Mm -hmm. so those are the vulnerable populations that i usually work with yeah no that's very crucial populations that i feel like would have not otherwise received any care right for me that's vulnerable as well right that if you, when you and your organizations yeah. don't step in, if they hadn't, nobody else would have reached that far. So thank you for that. Yeah. Um, we've run out of time, but I want to hear what you have to say. I feel like we've already been touching about it, especially when you talked about how you started your career. But maybe can you, what is your advice to a younger version of yourself? 18-year-old Tatenda, 18-year-old Tata, or, you know, young people... Uh, in Zimbabwe, in other African countries, what would you, what are your top three like recommendations or advice as people as they're seeking careers? Or maybe someone is listening today and they're like, oh, I want to do what she's doing. Or I want to be in safeguarding or in public health or in humanitarian work. What is your word of advice and top three recommendations? Okay. My first one would be go bold. Mm. apply for that thing that you never in a million times would have been considered for or that you think there is no way mm-hmm. because most of the jobs like all the jobs that I've heard they were uh, there is no way I am going to even be considered in those like mm-hmm. just apply your job do not disqualify yourself mm-hmm. beforehand your job is to apply their job is to disqualify so if you're doing the disqualifying, then who will be doing the applying? And 
the second thing that I would want to tell them is, I mean, of course, we talk about we need to pay in tears and everything, and mm-hmm. that's that's valid. But if you're starting out, that unpaid internship is worth more than sitting at home. Mm. Go for it. Mm. You either pick up something that you would ha- you would help you later, or but just go for it. And my third thing would be LinkedIn is a very very big and good resource. And mm-hmm. there needs to be, I mean, there needs to be a way. Like there needs to be an etiquette into it you 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 need to know how to use it right yeah i will say how i use it even before i started what i would do is i would connect with people who have who are in the departments that i want to work in or who are in the same field that i want to work in. Mm. and then i don't just go into their inboxes and say you need to find me a job like you need to get me a job no or i need a job no i used to like introduce myself what i've done mm-hmm. and ask i'm looking for a mentor mm. i need a mentor or i need more like if you don't mind sharing more information about how you got to where you are and trust me people like talking about themselves yeah <laughs> i mean i spent an hour here talking about myself we love that so <laughs> They will tell you, and in between, you will have some lessons, you have some mm-hmm. pointers. This has helped me so much. In as, in as much as I've never gotten a job from LinkedIn or mm-hmm. LinkedIn connections, it has helped me build like a community of the same like-minded people. When things are happening and they get, okay, so today I did this, I completed this uh, online course. I can see it from their LinkedIn and I can go to that online course and see, okay, uh, maybe yeah, this is what I need. Yeah. And I go and I take that course and it's going to help me. Okay. And I've also had people offer to review my CV and I do that a lot. Uh, I, I, somebody did it for, to me for free and they've mm-hmm. helped me. They helped me until my CV became very attractive in years. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I do that like whenever people like inbox me, I'm like, of course I can't get you a job. You know, the the, the formalities that you have to go through and equal opportunities and all this. But what I can do for you is I can go through your CV and how and like see how best we can make it more attractive because somebody else did that for me from LinkedIn. So you get to be with like you don't it's not always that you will be it will be beneficial in terms of getting your job but it will help you in terms of building a community that can make you employable so no absolutely so you say go bold uh go for it and you say use linkedin linkedin is your best friend uh okay all right it's so funny so interesting story on my end I also, when I graduated my bachelor's, did not have a job. I had to spend a couple of months job searching. Same thing when I actually finished mm-hmm. my master's. Also didn't have a job. With my bachelor's, I never used LinkedIn, now that you mentioned it. But my master's mm-hmm. program was a little bit more intentional and aggressive. <laughs> Career, like, I think at the professional level, like, stats and all of these mattered. Like, they're able to say, with this class graduated and this amount of people got jobs by this. So we had, like, boot camps. Exactly. So, <laughs> So I had like LinkedIn outreach templates, right? And would send them all out. Like you said, finding people in fields or jobs or roles that you're interested in and would reach out. And you're right. I've never personally gotten a job from LinkedIn. But what I did get is like you're saying, a lot of informational interviews, talk to people who've had five years, 10 years, 15 years experience, you know, took yeah. a look at my profile, gave me suggestions of programs, organizations follow online to apply, keep an eye out. And that has definitely been helpful in my career to date. So. I completely agree with you that LinkedIn is a source and not just for jobs, right? It's also a networking. Um, So yeah, shout out to LinkedIn. And like now, (laughs) right now, they should sponsor this this, uh, episode. (laughs) And also like like when I started self-guarding, it's a a new field, it's a new niche and most organizations Mm -hmm. that are like, starting now to have more people so i started looking for people who are in the same career and you know like just to see 
like wh- where what is their background how did they become to where they are mm-hmm. and now they post all these sayings online uh, and and they are all these platforms they now mm-hmm. information sharing platforms and mm-hmm. they don't even ask you like who who do you work for you just be there and next thing you know their vacancy is being posted in there every day and it's like you know this is the kind of resource that nobody like tells you that you know that it's just going to come you're just going to go on linkedin and get headhunted doesn't work like that sometimes right. we use it as a stepping tool to where we're supposed to go yeah you're right and for me i agree with that it also definitely the like i think especially with public health and that's part of the reason i started the podcast is like you're saying like for safeguarding but i think it even applies to public health so a lot of people have a sense of being interested in it but don't even know the language the words where the titles start, yeah. like where do i start and linkedin was helpful i'll just google people you know and just say oh so this person there's a who like okay so what does who do okay. right and then you see different people in the profiles and they're like oh okay they studied this maybe i should take like you say maybe i should take this training this certificate and kind of like broaden your industry knowledge and industry understanding and that kind of stuff even without realizing yeah. will be helpful if, when your interviews are able to now speak in the street language yeah right? you would mm-hmm. you would now be able to say all this niche words like i'll be able to say survival center know how if you say those in the humanitarian mode, like let me just give you this tip when if you ever oh, want to see i learned humanitarian words <laughs> just say <laughs> just say those two words behavior you know change communication <laughs> and then they're going to show they're going to show this to you right there right so, and and yeah you like you say now they're looking for a lot of people with bcc knowledge and expertise so of course they'll shortlist you so yeah i'm learning right um but that's really helpful another thing just like a future plug for tanwen also a plug uh, like a future request for you but definitely i think for town of public health chats looking to make it beyond just the podcast i've also toyed like you mentioned mentor toyed with the idea of like creating a mentorship platform or at least just a website a website where people can connect with peers from african countries and learn about their career paths or have like you mentioned these like um interviews where you just get to talk to people and like you said you're already doing like the CV and resume review like just creating a, a network where people can support each other and learn more about the field um you know if linkedin yeah. is us and we have money calling upon your expertise and knowledge <laughs> thank you so much but yeah this has been amazing thank you so much for taking the time Do you have anything you'd want to like shout out or plug or share? Okay, uh first I would like to shout out to all the public health practitioners uh-huh. or people who want to be in public health. It's rewarding work, it's hard uh-huh. work. You're just not going to be sitting around. It, it, it's it's hard work, but at the end of the day you you will see your work. Uh-huh. And I would like to urge the the practitioners already in the industry to be more open to sharing and thank you for having this platform that people can come and share now i was listening to this episode by will when she mm-hmm. was talking about bioengineering i was like wow we are learning <laughs> people are doing amazing work and we just don't know what we it is really right? for you to be because usually when we read about these things i'm i, I need to say this usually it's people from far away lanes that mm-hmm. we don't get to see like people oh in God. like people we know people we grew up with are doing yeah. these things so usually we we don't get to know about how people in africa are doing things and you with this podcast you've shown us like people from zim people from rwanda people from i think there was in west africa mm-hmm. and and it is amazing and i would like to shout out to you for that and you also have given me an idea because like uh, i was just saying this area of scouting is a really really small niche like not not many people know what we do and i find that like as organizations now they're mandated to have people like scouting for co points 
and how to get that like we we i'm i'm thinking of starting up a, a podcast i mean i've already like started but i'm a little lazy so i i needed this this has helped me to see yeah. how it can be done as well uh-huh. So I think they had to be having something like this, but like for safeguarding and prevention of sexual exploitation and abuse, experts. And I think with this push that you have given me, this with this platform, I think in a month or so I should be ready. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and you can always that. share once you get started. Free, um, feel free to like send me the link. We can add it to this episode notes, and even I can just share on my platforms as well on Instagram, Twitter. LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, and we can definitely, you know, launch you. Absolutely. And you can even share this like as a teaser to the kind of things you will be talking about on your podcast. So definitely excited about that. And that was definitely, that makes me feel so happy and so fulfilled because podcasting is a lot of work, but it's just a firm start. Like there is a need for this. Um, Yeah, there's a need for people to learn about safeguarding so that, you know, people know their rights and know that, the fields, you know, the workers that we also need to hold each other accountable, right, in the field and the work that we do. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, this has been amazing. And it's now not just, um, oh, sorry. It's not, not just like ahead, yeah. for, mm-hmm. it's not just for aid workers. Uh, now it's for everything, like in sports. Now there's yeah. a getting experts for in, 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 in those football clubs like Manchester United. Mm. I, I think I have one of those on my LinkedIn. There's mm. a cutting in the NHS. Those mm. people in the UK, they're separating everywhere. It's not just aid, aid work. So it's don't just think that, okay, yeah. I then I will, be, I will be put in the field. Then no, it's like everywhere. Even the accounting firms need mm. to have a self-cutting course. And like all these big companies, they have started that. So it's a field to look out for. Look and Yana is doing right now with public health. I think it will be great for us to also explore how that would look like in the study. Oh, absolutely. And I, I would be excited. I can't wait to hear about that as well because I think it's very important, especially for employers and organizations. <laughs> their people and their clients and their customers and their survivors and their patients, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Everywhere now. Yeah. So thank you so much, Tatenda. This has been Utano Public Health Chats with your host Fiona. And today we were interviewing Tatenda Dura and we were hearing all about humanitarian work and safeguarding. Mm-hmm.